so that we could provide $150 gift cards. Last Sunday, an anonymous donor from within this community gave the whole $2,500. That is worth celebrating, church. That is worth celebrating, church. God has called us and equipped us for a mission. God put us in this community to make a difference. And that difference is being made. And here's where it gets even better. Because we're, we're going to keep the offering open. We're not just going to shut it down now because we made it. The school came to us and they said, hey, we could use, our goal would be $150 gift cards. But now every dollar you give is an extra gift card. It's an extra family. It's an extra meal. Or it's a family that doesn't have to just buy groceries, but they can buy gifts too. Do you see that? We get to bless above and beyond because we serve a God who is above and beyond. Amen? This is worth celebrating, church. I am so, can we just give God a hand? I am so excited. Man. I love you guys. I love this church. I have no idea who did that, but thank you so much. If that was you, you are being used. Your generosity is being used. Your community is encouraged, and God has put us here for a purpose. Well, today we're continuing our Fire and Wind series. We're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to start reading in chapter 7, verse 24, or sorry, 54, verse 54. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to chapter 7, verse 54. In this series, we are studying our origin story. This is the story of how the church came to be. So we are asking the question, what makes the church the church? What is the culture of the church? What's the mission of the church? Because we as the fold are a local expression of the church of Jesus Christ globally. So what are the things that we are designed to do? I am super excited about this story. This story is going to sound like a bummer, but I'm super excited about it. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. At least it's not Ananias and Sapphira again. It's not God killing people because they lied. Um, Verse 54, it says this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Which I don't know what that means, but that's a really weird visual. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. If you've been here, you might remember that the motivation, the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now don't miss this next verse. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let's pray. 
God, this is your word. We remind ourselves of that again. We ask that you would speak to us. We want to be formed by you and you alone. In a few minutes, when all of this is done this morning, let the name of Jesus be the only name that matters. We love you. Amen. One of the things that every culture on earth and throughout history has in common is story. An argument could be made that story is the most powerful communicator that humans have. We tell stories. When we were kids, maybe you remember sitting on someone's lap listening to stories. In fact, there are cultures, and there were cultures, like the ancient Israelites that we read about in the early chapters of Scripture, that their entire history was kept in what's called an oral tradition. In other words, rather than learning dates and names, the elders of the people told stories, and the stories told the people who they were. Story is the most powerful communicator we've got. It's one of the most powerful things we've got as human beings. And every single one of us engages in story on a regular basis. Whether you are reading Anna Karina, or whether you are just captivated by a true crime podcast, or you are watching The Office for the 12th time, like you do. We all engage in story, because story is powerful. One of the crazy things about a story, one of the things that makes it so powerful, is that a story can stay exactly the same, but it can connect with you in different ways as you change. You ever notice that? You can go back to the same story, and a different thing stands out. Maybe you've been watching Seinfeld or Parks and Rec for 10 years, and the jokes that you find funny at 29 are not the jokes you found funny at 22, right? Because you've changed. The show's still funny. Nothing in the show has changed. But you've changed, so you interact with the story in a different way. The same story can mean different things. Now, for me, I love novels. I love to read. Confession, when I say read, I mean audiobooks. And if you don't think that counts, I don't care. I read audiobooks. Um, and my favorite novel of all time is a book called White Fang by Jack London. Yes, it is about a dog. Yes. Yes, I am an adult whose favorite book is about a dog. And I'm completely comfortable with that. In the opening paragraphs of this book, the author, Jack London, describes this devastating, beautiful, vast, to use his word, indomitable landscape of the Alaskan North. He spares no detail in describing a place that it seems impossible anything could survive it. And then with his wordscape, he zooms in on two people and a dog sled. And he says this line, a line that is so significant to me every time I've read this book that it's literally tattooed on my arm. He says this. He describes these men as puny adventurers bent on colossal adventure. Doesn't that make you want to buy a dog sled? I mean, that that makes me want to buy a dog sled. That makes me want to do something crazy. If If you were to ask people who study story, people who are authors, then one of the things you would learn is that there are a few basic elements of every good story. And one of those elements, in every story worth telling, in every story worth listening to, is conflict, tension, 
difficulty. Every story worth hearing has pain or a problem in it. That's true in all stories, whether it is the moral ambiguity of two police officers figuring out their place on an established force in the world of crime, like the other guys with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, or whether it's, uh, whether it's learning to wrestle with the darkness in yourself and of your family history, like the brothers Karamazov. Every story has conflict. That's what makes a story worth telling. There is something inside of you that is drawn towards difficulty. Let me say that one more time. There is something inside of you and me that is drawn to difficult things. It makes stories worth telling. Now this is a story. It's a true story, but it's a story. What that means is we are a community of people, but we're a community of individuals gathered this morning. So you might interact with this story in a different way. You might read this story and see the courage of Stephen and you're inspired. You might read this story and you're going through a difficult season and the idea of, of, of Stephen seeing Jesus in his moment of pain and desperation, that's something you need right now. That's what it's encouraging to you. You might find yourself uprooted. You might find yourself in a place where you feel like everything's changed and you really, really connect with the early church that was scattered. But there is something, even though this story connects with us as individuals in different ways, there is something that this story has to say for our church in our cultural moment in this time in history in the United States. Here's what I mean by that. We live in the culture of the easy way. We live in the culture of the easy way. We live in a culture that sets the goals to not work. I think about it like this. We've structured most things in our society so that, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with this, we just need to notice what's actually going on. We've structured things in our society so that if you work hard enough now and you accrue enough resources, you can stop working as quick as possible. And you can do the things you actually want to do. We work for the weekend. We look forward to getting off. Five o'clock. We work so that we don't have to. I want to tell you something, church. If the goal is ease, the work will always be drudgery. If the goal is ease, the work will always be drudgery. And we get told things like, hey, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And then we get our dream job, and some days we want to bash our head against the wall, and we wonder, man, did I do something wrong? What's wrong with me? Am I the only one? If the goal is ease, the work will always be drudgery. There's a tension that we feel because we are drawn to difficulty, but we set goals for ease and simplicity. This even makes it into our theology. I can't tell you how many Christians I have heard that might not say this explicitly, but this is how we communicate. This is how we talk. The world is awful. Things are so bad. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Thank God we get to die someday. Because heaven's going to be great and this world is horrible. As if escape is the goal. As if maybe God made a mistake when he put us here on purpose. 
we've got this perception somehow that before sin in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve were like sitting on lazy boys while the animals fed them grapes or something like that. But just for the record, Genesis chapter 2 doesn't say that God put humanity in the garden to enjoy it. It says he put humanity in the garden to work it. Work implies calloused hands. Work implies making something different. Caring for something. Difficulty is not the enemy. Now, I think this is really important. So I just, I want to, we're going to focus in on this for a second. Now, we at The Fold are, we are an intergenerational community. And we are an intergenerational community that I believe God has uniquely gifted and called to make an impact in the millennial generation. And a generation that's been left out of the church, that's been hurt and broken and lost in many ways. I want to talk to my people for a second, millennials. Because we are the most aware generation in history. I can, I, if I tried to list all the problems in the world I'm aware of, I would run out of time. I cannot tell you how many t-shirts I have bought and pairs of Toms I have owned and like whatever, how many Facebook posts I have reshared because awareness is part of the solution. And awareness is part of the solution. We're not just aware of human trafficking and poverty and racial injustice and corruption. We're also aware of things like needing healthy boundaries. And we're aware of things like our own wounds and brokenness. And we're aware of mental illness and all of these things. We are extremely, extremely aware as a generation, which can be a beautiful thing. But I think we're in danger of being the generation that was aware of everything and did nothing. I say that to myself as much as anyone else. Because awareness can be an easy way. Awareness is important. Being aware of the problem is the first step. But if you don't take the rest of them, you haven't gone anywhere. The easy way is a continual temptation that you will face your entire life. Now, it might not seem like a big deal right now. But once again, I want to make this as clear as possible. <clears throat> because with, if a habit, if the goal is ease, then there's going to be a point, if you're married or you want to get married, where it'd be a lot easier just to say, maybe, maybe she's not who I thought she was. Maybe he's not who I thought he was. Maybe we were wrong, and we should try again. <clears throat> and that's going to seem like the easy way. There's going to be a time in parenting. I've got a five-year-old. Parenting is hard, and he's not even a teenager. When it's going to seem like it's a lot easier to just give up, let them do whatever they want. There's going to be a time, if you're fighting for sobriety, when it's going to seem a lot easier to just say, I don't, I don't need to go to the meetings. They don't help anyone. And then there's going to be a time when it's a lot easier just to say, well, just one drink doesn't hurt anything. You're fighting for purity. There's going to be a time where it's a lot easier to not tell anyone and just put safe search on your computer and hope that you have the willpower to deal with it. The easy way is a temptation that we continually face. We live in the culture of the easy way. And if work, if, if the goal is ease, 
work is drudgery. Church, the easy way is the hardest thing on your soul. The easy way is the hardest thing on your soul because here's what this story is. This is a story about the way the people of God respond to difficulty. Now, I want to say this. It would be the easy way right now for us to just say, oh, we've got to work harder, do more. Just man up, woman up, put your big boy pants on and get to work. But for some of us, the hardest thing to do is take a day off. And it'd be easier to never take a Sabbath. For some of us, the easy way would be to never actually talk to a therapist. Or to never actually open up about our issues. To never actually do the painful work of fighting for healing. The goal of this is not that we all leave wanting to work harder. The goal of this is that we see that there's something in you that's drawn towards difficulty. See, here's what happens with Stephen. Stephen was preaching the gospel. He was doing the work of the kingdom, and he began having his life threatened. Now, you've got to understand this. If, if Stephen was your friend, if he was my friend, and he came to us and he said, hey, guys, uh, they're, they're going to throw rocks at me until I die if I don't stop preaching the gospel, we would all say, hey, why don't you cool off for a little bit? Why don't you just take it easy, like live to fight another day here, man? Hey, you can preach later when all of this dies down. But the story of Stephen is the story of someone who embraced the difficulty. Why? Because his mission was in the difficulty. There was a purpose in the problem. And it was in this moment of difficulty that he was actually able to be the clearest example of the goodness of God as he offered forgiveness to those who were killing him. There was a mission in the problem. There was a purpose in the problem. Christians are not escapists. See, the early church, if, if we were friends with the members of the early church, every single one of us, if you had a friend that said, hey, I've had to leave my home, they're dragging people out of their houses, I've got to get my kids out of here because we're preaching the gospel, every single one of us would say, hey, well, why don't you keep it down for a little bit? Why don't you calm down for a little bit? Wait till all of this blows over. There'll be time to preach later. But what does verse 4 of chapter 8 say? It says, those who were scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Why? Because they probably remembered Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which we talked about, where Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So when they got scattered to Judea and Samaria, they probably realized there was a purpose in the problem. There was a mission in the difficulty. Church, you were designed for difficult things. You were designed for difficult things. We are the people of the God who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But then he went to the cross and said, take up yours and follow me. Why? Because the easy way is the hardest thing on your soul. You were made for difficult things. And when we take the easy way out, we miss what we were made for. We serve a savior who did the hard work of redeeming everyone. And then he continues to do the hard work of not leaving us in our sin so that we can someday join him in heaven, but of redeeming and reconciling and proclaiming and transforming and breaking chains and setting captives free. That you see that there is a purpose in the problem. Listen, we, we live in a world that has been marked by sin. Suffering is not of God. We were not designed to suffer. We experience evil and we experience pain that we were never meant to experience. But the grace of God tells us that the Holy Spirit in us is powerful enough to handle anything that we will face. There is nothing you will encounter this life that the Holy Spirit cannot handle. You were made 
You were designed for difficult things. You were designed to make a difference. The life you were created to live is the life of the stories we love to tell. Because stories with conflict. Because no good stories are stories about the enemy. Now I know some of you in here, you are thinking, CJ, I mean, I want to live that story. I would love to do that, but I'm a stay-at-home parent. Or I'm just like a middle school teacher. Or you don't know how difficult this situation I'm in is. I do not know how to do it. And listen, I wish I could tell you this morning like, that there's like five steps. That if you just do this, 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 and this, then you will be able to live the mission God's called you and you'll overcome every difficulty. I wish I could do that. Unfortunately, that's not biblical. I wish I could tell you that if you just trust Jesus in your pain, that everything will be up and to the right and you won't feel it and everything will get easier. Unfortunately, if anyone preaches that life just gets better and easy with the gospel, they haven't read the Bible. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you what Stephen had. And what Stephen had in his difficulty was a vision of Jesus. You know what? caused Stephen to be able to look at the people flinging rocks at him and say, Father, don't hold this sin against them. It was a vision of Jesus. You know what the early church had that caused them to say, yeah, our lives have been uprooted. We've been scattered. We have lost everything. But everywhere we go, we will preach the name of Jesus. It was a vision of Jesus. And I don't just mean like a metaphysical, actual seeing Jesus with your own eyes. What I mean is that you have a vision of the difference that Jesus makes. When you see how good Jesus, when you catch a vision of what it would actually look like if the way of Jesus encountered your problem, have you caught a vision of what it would look like if your marriage, if Jesus met you in your marriage? Have you caught a vision of what it would look like for the way of Jesus to encounter your family? Have you caught a vision of what it would look like for Jesus to transform your classroom? Have you caught a vision of what it would look like for Jesus to be involved in human trafficking or in teen suicide rates? Have you caught a vision of what it would look like if he were to call you and he were to meet you in the problem? See, this is, this is what happens when followers of Jesus catch a vision is we see that that thing looks dark, but that Jesus, like LJ said a few weeks ago, Jesus meets us in the mess. That the mess is where the good stuff is because that's where Jesus is. That the mission is in the problem. There's purpose in the problem. Do you have a vision for what it would be like if Jesus encountered that issue? Listen, we could, we could tell stories about what this looks like all day. We could tell stories from this community. I'm going to tell a story. These people probably hate that I will tell this story, but you see the people that lead worship here every week, Jack and Caroline. You probably know how incredibly talented they are. You probably know that they could be working at a you know, large church that could like pay them and stuff. In fact, before here, they were working at a church that could pay them and stuff. And every single one of us, would look at their life and we'd say, hey, yeah, it makes a lot of sense for you guys to get paid for what you do. If they were to say, you know what, I've given it my best, we're going to go take a job down the road. Every single one of us would say, that seems wise. No, but they caught a vision of what it would look like if the healing and wholeness of Jesus actually encountered people in the city of Greenville. And they are doing the hard thing 
I can tell you that story over and over and over again of people on our ministry team who could be doing other things in other places and getting paid comfortably for it, but instead they work other jobs so they can give away their time for free. Why? Because they caught a vision of what it would look like if Jesus encountered the problem. They saw the problem of people who were broken and hurting, people who had been used by the church, people who had been let down by leaders, and they said, what if there was a place where the healing and wholeness of Jesus was real? That's worth the hard work. There was a purpose in the problem. They didn't take the easy way out. Church, you were designed for difficult things. There's a purpose in the problem. Do you have a vision for what it would look like if Jesus encountered that thing? What is that burden? What is that issue? What's that thing that God's put on your heart? Is it your kids? Is it your school? Is it your family? Is it homeless youth? Is it human trafficking? What is that thing? Have you caught the vision for what it would look like if Jesus met you there? Christians are not escapists. We are not the people of the easy way. Why? Because there's purpose in the problem. Jesus meets us in the problem. As we close this morning, I want to tell a story. It seemed fitting because we're talking about the stories that we're supposed to live, the story of the early church. This is the story of a rock climber. There's going to be a picture up on the screen. This is a rock climber named Alex Honnold. That picture is kind of skewed, but I think you get the idea. Um, you might have heard this story before. I believe it was 2017 when Alex Honnold became famous. He was a professional rock climber, but he wasn't known for just climbing hard things. He was known for climbing without ropes. Now, he became famous in 2013 because he was the first person ever to do what's called free soloing, to climb without ropes, up the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. And if none of those words mean anything to you, that means these pictures, you can go on to the next one, 2,000 feet of rock, no ropes. Now, as you can imagine, there were a whole lot of reactions. Everything from this guy's a hero to this guy is an idiot. Get him help. For the record, I land kind of on that side. I, no way. Because this guy, th he wasn't just climbing, okay? If it was a 2,000-foot ladder, that would be impressive, but that wasn't a ladder, okay? He, it was 512 to 514 climbing. You, don't, might know what that, you might not know what that means, so let me explain it. When I used to climb when I was in college. I wasn't a great climber, but I climbed all the time, and the hardest I could ever climb was 511. When you get to 512 ratings, you get into, like, this is the only thing you do for fun rating. And when you get to 514, you get to, you get paid to do this because you're a professional rating. So he was climbing professional grade. To make this more clear, if you were to look at your hand, and you were to look at the first digit of your index finger, and you were to look at about half of the pad of your index finger, that's about what he was holding on to for 2,000 feet. Crazy. Now, in an interview, someone asked him, what do you do when the adrenaline hits? How, how do you manage your emotions in that moment? What do you do? And he said, if I, if I start to feel adrenaline, I actually know something's wrong. Because the only thing I'm thinking about in that moment is the next move. And I was like, what? That is ridiculous. I'm, I have adrenaline just thinking about that. But then I realized, what a beautiful description of the way a follower of Jesus encounters the problems in the world. 
Listen, I'm not telling you some like glossy-eyed perspective that we will never be afraid and everything's going to be easy and simple. No, there are going to be times when we're afraid and there are going to be times when your adrenaline is pumping. But where are your eyes in that moment? They are on the next move, Jesus in the problem. The vision of Jesus in the pain. We are people who are present. We are not people escaping. We are not people looking for a way out. We are people who see that God has called us and equipped us to be his hands and feet, to be the redemptive presence, empowered by his Holy Spirit in the pain of the world around us. You're struggling with lust. Do you have a vision of what purity looks like? You are struggling with gossip. Do you have a vision of what being a good friend looks like? You're struggling. You're struggling with your job. Do you have a vision of what it would look like for Jesus to be present in your workplace? You are struggling struggling with the pain in the world. You're looking at racial unrest and you're looking at injustice and that brings pain in your heart. Do you have a vision for what it would look like if Jesus encountered that thing? Do you have a vision of what it would look like if Jesus was in that situation? And do you have the confidence to say, maybe Jesus is calling me into that situation? You were made for difficult things, church. You were made for difficult things. And listen, I might just be a glossy-eyed millennial who's wet behind the ears and doesn't understand reality, but I actually believe in a world that can be different. I actually believe that followers of Jesus were put here to make an impact. I actually believe that we don't have to settle for human trafficking and for high suicide rates and for poverty across the globe. I actually believe that God's called us and he's equipped us to make a difference there. And I believe that when we look at this place, we look at these people, that, that there is going to be a day when stories are being told from all over the fold about the difference being made. But it's only going to happen when we become people who embrace the difficulty, when we become people who don't run from the problem, but run into the problem because that's where Jesus is. When we become people who do the hard work of fighting for emotional and spiritual health, we become people who do the hard work of fighting for purity. We become the people who do the hard work of pursuing the mission of Jesus. Jesus. That is where the difference is made because the Holy Spirit is in you and there's nothing you will face in this life the Holy Spirit can't handle. You were made. You were designed for difficult things. It's been a difficult year. It's been a difficult almost two years now for a lot of reasons. Jesus is meeting you. He is here. He is present in the difficulty. We are not escapists. We are the people who run into the problem because Jesus is the solution. Here's how I want to close this morning. I want to ask, is there anyone here in this room who you would be willing to say, you'd be willing to raise your hand and say, there is something difficult in my life. You don't have to tell anybody what it is. You don't have to say it out loud. Maybe Maybe it's a family issue. Maybe it's a personal issue. Maybe God's put a burden for a justice issue on your heart. Maybe God's put a calling in your heart that just scares you to death. Maybe you've got an idea for a business, or maybe, I don't know what it is, if there's something difficult in front of you, but you are ready to to meet Jesus in that difficulty. You are ready this morning to say, I am not going to take the easy way out. I'm going to meet Jesus in the difficulty. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. I want us to pray together and pray for one another. I'm going to raise my hand for myself, not just in solidarity, but because I am looking at my life right now, and I'm saying there are things I need Jesus to meet me in. Is there anybody in this room who you would say there is something difficult in my life that I need prayer for, that yes, amen. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, but what I want you to do is I want you, if you 
if, if you don't have your hand up, look around to someone who does or someone who did and reach out your hand towards them. If you know them well, put your hands on them. We are going to pray together for Jesus to empower us to be people who embrace the difficulty, who see the purpose in the problem. So I'm going to start praying. Don't listen to me. Pray for the person that you're pointing your hand towards, all right? Put those hands back up. Find somebody you are praying for. Let's pray together. Jesus, Jesus, you meet us in the problem. Jesus, you meet us in the pain. Jesus, you meet us in the difficulty. Jesus, you designed us to be people who embrace difficulty because you have a vision of what the freedom looks like and you have a vision of what the hope looks like and you have a vision of what the healing looks like. We are not escapist, Jesus. We are people who run into the problem, who run into the pain to meet you there and see what you can do, God. So give us courage, give us confidence, give us the sensitivity to hear your voice guiding us in these situations. God, let us catch a vision of what it would actually look like if Jesus met us in the pain. Show us a picture of what healing looks like, Jesus. Show us a picture of what purity looks like, Jesus. Show us a picture of what our calling looks like, Jesus. Let us not be people who are afraid. Let us not be people who escape. Let us be people who go sent with mission and power, trusting that you are the God who redeems, saves, and restores all things. We trust you, Jesus. Send us into the problem, Jesus, so that we can see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we will give you the praise and you the glory because it's your calling, your world. We are your people and it's your truth we are proclaiming. It is all about you, Jesus, and we trust you. Amen. Let's worship together.